With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. Okay. ¿Y, ¿Y qué le dijo? ¿Y qué le dijo? ¿Usted le preguntó a, a, a Sandy and, qué pasó? And what did she say? What did she say? Did you ask Sandy what happened? Yes, but she couldn't speak. She was very, very nervous. Yes. Well, yes. No, she only said, where is Jaime, where is Jaime, meaning the husband. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want her to see how he was because I know she is sick as well. And But then I, she saw him as well and she started to cry. But we didn't ask her too many questions because I wanted to calm her down because she was crying. And how? How did she see him? Well, she got scared when she saw him and she started crying and screaming and I was trying to calm her. But you said you didn't, did it? But you didn't want, didn't see him for her to see. Oh, yes, but she, she got away from me either way and went back to look for him. And where did she go see him? I mean, she got up from where I had her in the closet. I picked her up. Mm -hmm. I helped her up, her and she, um, she saw that he was in the closet since she saw his feet. And I didn't want, well, for her to go to that side of the closet because I didn't want her to see him. Yes. Then I couldn't, we couldn't ask her anything mm -hmm. because she started to, to cry. Mm -hmm. And we tried to calm her and... Okay, so... So... Maria Melgar once described Sandy's reaction to finding her husband murdered as inconsolable. She told me that she couldn't speak. She was crying so hard that she could barely breathe. Which is exactly what I would expect from someone who had been through what Sandy had and then found the love of her life murdered. Her world had come crashing down around her in an instant. But not everyone perceived Sandy's response the same as Maria did. There were two individuals specifically that encountered Sandy just moments after she had found Jim's body. Paramedic Stephanie Roberts and Harris County Precinct 4 Constable Jennifer Martinez. Last week, we identified some distinct differences between Maria's perception of events on the night of and five years later when she took the stand at trial. While her memory of seeing Sandy's arm bindings most certainly had been compromised, her impressions of Sandy's emotional response remained constant. Sandy was hysterical. Today, we're going to compare and contrast the testimonies of Roberts and Martinez. As we do so, you're going to notice some distinct differences. 
Roberts was a paramedic on an ambulance on the night Jim was found. She had no affiliation with law enforcement whatsoever. She showed up, did her job, and documented her work, and recalled those events on the stand at trial. Martinez, on the other hand, is an arm of the state, part of the team that twisted and manipulated evidence in order to convict Sandy. The two women were both present, literally side by side, during Sandy's medical evaluation that night. But their recall of events could not be more different. We're going to start today with the testimony of paramedic Stephanie Roberts. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Roberts was a prosecution witness, so Colleen Barnett starts things off with direct examination. She begins with the usual reciting of Stephanie Roberts' resume. At the time of trial, Roberts was working as a paramedic in an emergency room. She'd been doing that since shortly after Jim's murder, and prior to that, she had spent 13 years working on an ambulance. After the resume and brief discussion on Roberts' education and training, Barnett jumps right into the night of December 23, 2012. Roberts testified that the call originally came in as a stabbing, with possibly two victims. Then at that point, her run report was admitted into evidence. We learned that Stephanie and her partner were dispatched at 4.39 p.m., and it took four minutes for them to arrive on scene. They were the first uniforms to show up on Kelsey Meadows' court that night. Roberts testified that there was a crowd of people, 10 to 15, she says, gathered outside the house when she arrived, but no police officers had shown up yet. She was escorted into the house by who she describes as a young female. Presumably, this was either Monica or Marissa. Robert's escort directed her into the back bedroom, pointed, and said, he's in there, and she's in there. These were Robert's first observations during her testimony, from the transcript. I glanced, because where we were at, I glanced at the first closet, and I saw him, and then I heard her screaming and crying, so I went into there to her. So her first impression of Sandy's emotional response was the same as Maria's. She was screaming and crying. She goes on to say that she found Sandy sitting in a chair in the bathroom. And, quote, she was crying hysterically and she had a family member consoling her, end quote. She then goes on to describe her assessment process with Sandy. Robert stated that she saw no obvious signs of injury during her initial visual assessment. She then attempted to talk to Sandy to ask her if she had any injuries. From the transcript. At that point, I attempted to talk to her. It was very difficult because she was so upset. I asked her if she had any injuries being harmed, and she advised me that she was not harmed. Stephanie's first concern with Sandy was making sure that she herself hadn't been stabbed, since the initial dispatch was for a stabbing with two victims. From here, Barnett has her back up and talk about the notes that she made in a report about the conditions of the Melgar house. Interestingly, Robert uses a turn of phrase to describe the bathroom that we've become very familiar with during Maurice Carpenter's testimony. To refresh your memory, Barnett asked Carpenter, room by room, if the house was, quote, in disarray. And if you remember, Maurice responded every time that the room was not in disarray. 
But this is how Stephanie Robertson described the bathroom and the bedroom in her report. From her testimony, It started when I walked in the bedroom. I noticed the room was in disarray. There was clothes everywhere. There was pillows on the floor. There was, looked like purse on the bed and had been dumped out. When I went into the bathroom, I noticed a bottle of an unknown alcohol and some strawberries that were on the side of the tub as well. The tub was half filled with water and I saw a large knife in the bathtub. After Robert's initial assessment of Sandy, police began to arrive and they were asked to move out of the master suite and into the living room. It was there that a complete head-to-toe assessment was performed by the paramedic. According to Robert, Sandy was suffering from diarrhea and had to use the bathroom two or three times during her assessment. Barnett asked her if Sandy explained what had happened to her during her assessment. Robert relayed the same basic version of events that we're all familiar with. Sandy told her that she and Jim had gone out to dinner for their anniversary, then stopped at CVS, and when they got home, they got into the tub together. Sandy told her that she believed this occurred at around 10.30 p.m. She said that they spent about two hours in the tub. She remembers getting out and getting dressed and then later waking up in the closet. And that's it. And then after that, we move into the medical evaluation. According to Roberts, Sandy told her that she believed she had had a seizure because when she woke up, her head and joints hurt. From the transcript. So based off her complaints, because she had told me several times that she believed she had had a seizure... She has a seizure disorder, and she stated multiple times that she thinks she possibly had a seizure because when she woke up, she had a headache and her joints hurt. She said that's usually what happens after she has a seizure. She did tell me that the left side of her head hurt, and that was the only complaint from her at the time. From here, Roberts explained that she examined Sandy's head. She describes parting her hair, looking and palpating the area where the pain was noted. And then most of the damage to Sandy's case was done during the next exchange. I'll read it right from the transcript. Barnett, did you see any blood? No. Did you see any lacerations? No. Did you feel any bumps? I did not. Did you see any bruises? No. Did you see any marks on her face? No. Did you see anything on her face, her head, her scalp, her neck, anywhere that indicated to you that she'd been hit in any kind of way? No. Or injured in any kind of way? No. And in fact, she told you that she wasn't injured? Yes. She also, according to this record, she also told you her wrists and her ankles were bound. She did. How did she tell you? Is that just what she said? Yes, she did. She advised me that she was tied up in her closet by her wrist and her ankles, and she was unable to free herself. Is that something you asked? She told me. She volunteered that. Yeah, she volunteered that information. All right. Was she complaining anything about her wrist or ankles? No. No? She was just asserting? She just told me that she had been tied up for some amount of time. Did she tell you that someone tied her up? No, she just said she was tied up. Did you, did you look at her wrists or her ankles? I did. Did you find any injuries there? No. Did you find any markings there? No. Did you see anything that would indicate that she'd been tied up for 12 or 14 hours? No. Did she indicate to you that she was not able to free herself? She did. Did she indicate to you that she was not able to free herself from the bindings? She did. She said she was not able to get out. And would that indicate to you that would be according to her story, right? Right. After this question, Barnett is attempting to get Robert's opinion as to whether she would expect Sandy to have ligature marks from her bindings. She tries twice, both times Mac objects based on the form of the question, his objections were sustained, and Barnett moves on. But next we find some new information, or at least new to me. From everything I've heard from every other witness involved in this case, 
Sandy refused going to the hospital that night. And she did. But it's not quite that simple. Roberts explained what happened firsthand in the transcript. Barnett, did you ask her if she wanted to go to the hospital? I did. And what was her response? In the beginning, she did want to go. Okay. Like I said, this was an active crime scene at this point, so time went by. At the point of getting ready to transport, I asked the law enforcement on scene what the procedures because she wants to go to the hospital. And then she, at that point, she decided that she did not want to seek further medical attention. She stated that she just wanted to get out of the house, but she didn't need to seek medical attention at the hospital. So Sandy originally did want to go to the hospital, but after overhearing Robert speaking to the police about the procedures for taking her, she changed her mind. Based on Robert's testimony, the change of heart came because Sandy never really wanted to go to the hospital to begin with. She just wanted to get out of the house. Robert's direct examination was fairly basic, and she seemed to be doing her best to answer all the questions accurately. She did, however, testify to a few things that seemed to be contradicted by other evidence. Crime scene photos indicate that Sandy did, in fact, have ligature marks on her forearms. Although in Robert's defense, she only testified that she checked her wrist for ligature marks not the forearms. She did also testify that Sandy had no injuries or bruising to her face, and yet Maria told Deputy Garcia in her interview that night that Sandy looked like her eye was bruised. We can see evidence of that in the crime scene photos, even with the camera flash washing out the color. And photos taken by the family a day or two later clearly show that Sandy has a shiner. And lastly, Sandy went to the doctor on the 27th, and his examination revealed that she did indeed have a hematoma on her head, an injury that Robert seems to have missed. Despite the few inconsistencies, Roberts was extremely consistent throughout her direct examination in regards to Sandy's state of mind, and her testimony corroborates exactly what Maria said. Sandy was crying so hard that she couldn't speak. Roberts used the word hysteria to describe Sandy. This is one of the last exchanges during direct. Barnett, did the hour consist of you doing the assessment, the entire assessment? Roberts, Yes, between her hysteria and her going to the bathroom, yes. I was there for the patient and the patient only, yes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Max Seacrest begins cross-examination by having Roberts reconfirm Sandy's state of mind that night. Mac, 
How would you best describe to the jury the state of mind of Sandra Melgar, a stranger to you when you first saw her? Roberts. She was very hysterical. She was inconsolable. And Mac follows up with this. Did it seem genuine to you? Roberts. Yes. I honestly find it mind-numbing that there are people out there that don't seem to think that this is relevant. I can absolutely relate with Stephanie Roberts. I spent a lot of years at the fire department responding to render aid to people who had, in most cases, just been through the most traumatic events in their lives. I've been in exactly her position hundreds of times, trying to care for someone or just trying to get information from someone who is in absolute hysterics. I've also been at scenes where people were faking these types of reactions. For example, when someone's house burns to the ground and they're trying to convince you that they're upset, but they were the ones who actually started the fire to begin with. And it's usually very obvious when that's happening. And I worked in a relatively small town. Stephanie Roberts had been working in Houston for 13 years at this point. She had no doubt encountered literally thousands of people in these situations. From my own experience, when you've seen what real grief and hysteria looks like over and over again, you absolutely know when something isn't right. And Stephanie Roberts described Sandy as hysterical and inconsolable. So unless you think that Sandy is a cold-blooded psychopath, that reaction cannot be faked. And it is precisely the way that you would expect someone to respond to finding her husband of 32 years stabbed to death in his closet, just minutes before coming into contact with the paramedics. Mac next wants to talk about the fact that Sandy didn't want to go to the hospital. At the risk of being redundant, I'm again going to draw on my own experience here. I have personally witnessed on many occasions patients refusing treatment and denying an injury when they needed to go to the hospital. It happens a lot at fires specifically. On several incidents, homeowners had suffered burns or smoke inhalation, but were so distraught by the destruction of their homes that they didn't want to be bothered by having their injuries treated. In one dramatic incident, I've witnessed a man not realize that he had sustained third-degree burns. His barn had caught fire, and he tried to put it out himself. Once we had the fire under control, I spoke with him to get a statement. He had a jacket on, and he was clutching his arm, and he had soot all over his face. I asked him about any injuries, and he insisted that he was fine. I told him several times that he should really let me check him out, because he had clearly inhaled some smoke. And again, he insisted that he was fine. As I began to take his statement, the man urinated on himself. At that point, I knew something was very wrong with him. I removed his jacket and found that he had third-degree burns on his arm. I assessed his vitals and hooked him up to a monitor to find that he had a weak, thready pulse, a heart rate bordering on 200, and a plummeting blood pressure. The man that had assured me half a dozen times that he was fine ended up spending five days in the ICU. Now, of course, my initial thought was that he was hiding his injuries because he started the fire. But further investigation revealed that the fire was caused by an electrical short, and the man wasn't even home when the fire started. He wasn't hiding anything. He was just so upset that his barn and all of his tools and tractors had burned up that he didn't even realize his injuries were as bad as they were. Mac asked Roberts if she has experienced people who have experienced traumatic events refusing medical care when they really should have gone to the hospital. From the transcript. Have you found it to be the case sometimes in dealing with folks that have experienced a traumatic event that they may initially believe they don't need any treatment and they initially believe they're not harmed, but later on, turns out they probably should have gotten treatment. Roberts. I do, specifically in car accidents. Mac. Are you saying it's totally related to that? Roberts. 95%, yes. Mac. 
But there are occasions where you assess people in their homes who initially indicate they don't think they need medical attention, but in retrospect, they probably should have got some. Answer, yes. Seacrest next moves on to go back over Robert's assessment of Sandy. He has her demonstrate on his head how she examined Sandy's. Then he asks her if she's aware of the fact that sometimes hematomas and lumps may not be present after a trauma, but may show up later. Roberts confirms that that is something that does happen. After that, Matt continues on rehashing Roberts' direct examination. She confirms that she believes that Sandy was in a state of shock, and she actually noted in a report a quote from Sandy, quote, I just can't stay in this house, end quote. Roberts states that she believes this is because her husband had just been murdered in that house. Then Mac has her confirmed to the jury she was never contacted by anyone in law enforcement until two weeks before trial. Neither Corazal or Doucet ever spoke to her or even read a report for that matter, as we learn in Corazal's testimony. As Seacrest works towards the conclusion of cross-examination, he asks Roberts if she had examined Sandy's hands, and she had. Then he asks her if she noticed, quote, any kind of broken nails, any cuts, anything like that on her hand. She hadn't. He begins his wrap-up of cross-examination with the following. Did you see any report? You can look at it, Miss Roberts, if that would assist you. Patient had no sense of time and last recalled a time of 1 a.m. this morning. Patient did not realize that it was evening time and approximately 15 hours had passed. That she was unaware of events. Patient stated multiple times she thinks she had a seizure at some point. Is that what you said? Yes. Recross was an absolute shit show. The Reader's Digest version is that Barnett is attempting to get Roberts to testify to the fact that she thinks the crime scene itself was, quote, fishy. But of course, she's not a cop, and that is well beyond her scope as a witness. After pages of objections, Barnett never gets an answer to her question. I'll get to that in a minute, but before we go there, let me hit on a few questions that did get answered. So, Roberts had already testified that Sandy had said both that she had a headache and that the left side of her head hurt. That's why she was palpating for any hematomas or lumps. Barnett wants her to say that Sandy only said that she had a headache from the transcript. So, she did not tell you that her head hurt. She didn't say that, is that right? Answer, no. She said she had a headache and that the left side of her head hurt. If you were confused by that, you're not alone. She answered no, and then said that she did say that the left side of her head hurt. Barnett moved on quickly to asking about the lump on Sandy's head. Essentially, she wants Roberts to testify that it's not normal for a lump to not be present after being hit on the head 15 hours later. There are a lot of I don't knows, objections, and I would assumes, but no real answer. And then the shit show begins. Barnett asked Roberts what her opinion was of, quote, what you saw there, the whole, the whole deal. Mac objects, and it's sustained. Then Barnett asks about her opinion specifically of Sandy's behavior. And this is Robert's response. If you're asking, was it fake? I couldn't say that. I can't. She presented as thoroughly upset. So that was clearly a swing and a miss for Barnett. So she circles back to the, what was your opinion of the scene question? Over and over and over again. I'm not going to read it to you because the exchange is pretty long, but it goes something like this. Question, object, sustained. Same question, object, sustained. Same question rephrased, object, overruled, follows up with original question, object, sustained, narrates exactly what she wants Roberts to say, Mac objects with, quote, 
Objection, she's testifying, she's leading, and she has yet to ask a question, end quote. Sustained, rinse, and repeat. Barnett eventually just gives up after Max's slurry of objections are sustained. I think what she was getting at is what we saw Robert say during the Dateline episode a year ago. If memory serves, there was a short soundbite in that episode of Robert saying that the scene didn't look like any home invasion that she had ever seen before. But as she said when Barnett asked her the question, she's not a cop or a detective, she doesn't investigate scenes, so... Objection. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So far, we've heard from three people who interacted with Sandy in the first few minutes after she was found in the closet and then found Jim dead. Herman, who really wasn't paying that much attention to Sandy, but noted that she was screaming and crying. Maria, who was tending to Sandy immediately upon finding Jim's body who said that Sandy was screaming and crying uncontrollably. So much so that she couldn't even ask her what happened because she couldn't speak. And paramedic Stephanie Roberts, who described Sandy as being hysterical, in shock, screaming, crying, unable to speak, and, I'll use her exact word, inconsolable. And what do all three of these people have in common? None of them work for the Harris County Sheriff's Department. None of them have any motivation to lie or misrepresent the scene. And as none of them are a part of any team in this case, there's no need for them to be team players. The other thing that these three people have in common is the fact that they're all consistent. All three of them have described Sandy's emotional response in the exact same way. Roberts even went so far to say that after 13 years of experience on the ambulance, responding to literally thousands of traumatic incidents, in her opinion, Sandy was in no way faking her emotional response. She testified that the crying and the hysterics were genuine. But let's now contrast these three testimonies with that of a former auto mechanic that at the time of the murder had been a patrol officer for a year and a half. Deputy Jennifer Martinez. Martinez testified that by 2012 she had never responded to a single murder scene. Other than Jim's, of course and had never experienced or encountered anyone who had just found out that a loved one had been murdered. Nevertheless, her testimony, unsurprisingly, fits right into the prosecution's narrative, and completely contradicts all of the other witnesses' recall of Sandy's behavior that night. After reading her testimony, it's clear to me that Jennifer Martinez is most certainly playing for team prosecution. Let me give you a couple of examples. During direct examination, with Barnett doing the questioning, Martinez testified that nothing was stolen from the house and there was no forced entry. She testified that the scene did not look like a robbery to her. From the transcript, quote, It did not look like there was a burglary that took place, end quote. Just think about how that information might be received by the jury. A cop, in uniform, testifies under oath that this was not a robbery. Nothing was stolen and there was no forced entry. Now, it's pretty easy to put that narrative out for the jury during direct, 
After all, that's exactly what the attorney questioning Martinez wanted her to say. But luckily, Mac gets a crack at her during cross-examination, and the whole truth comes out. Seacrest first draws out of Martinez that she actually wrote a report that night. She typed it out on the computer in a patrol car. So we can reasonably assume that the information contained in the report is accurate. We also find out that Martinez was actually the first uniformed responder to encounter Sandy that night. She testified that she was the first officer on the scene, and she and her partner arrived shortly behind Stephanie Roberts and her partner. When she walked in, Roberts was still assessing Jim in the closet, and Martinez made her way to Sandy in the master bathroom. And here we get a little insight into how well she actually remembers the scene, specifically details. Mac asked her how she found Sandy. Martinez says that Sandy was sitting in the bathroom. She's not sure if she was on a chair or the toilet. She thinks not on the toilet, but she was definitely sitting. Seacrest asks her if Sandy was laying on the ground. Martinez says no, she was sitting. She's sure of that. From the transcript. Was she sitting or was she lying on the floor? I believe she was sitting. She was not lying down. Mac. Okay, have you looked? Do you have a copy of the offense report there? Yes. Look at page 5. It's 7 pages, is it not? Yes, sir. Look at page 5. Go to the last paragraph. Martinez. I put lying next to the toilet. Mac. In your report, when your memory was fresh, that she was in the master bathroom laying next to the toilet crying. Fair statement? Martinez. If that's what I put... Now, the whole sitting or laying thing may seem insignificant, but it lays a greater foundation. Martinez does not remember basic sensory details of that night. Her memory is directly conflicted by her own report that she wrote on that night. That will become more important later, but for now, let's move on to her testimony during direct, where she says that nothing was stolen from the house. During cross, we found out that Martinez never asked Sandy if anything was stolen. She's never been to the house before to know if anything was missing, and she was focused on Sandy during her entire time in the house. She even testified during direct that she didn't inspect the scene at all. As she said, that's Homicide's job, not hers. So how could she possibly know if anything had been stolen? Mac had the same question from the transcript. Isn't it charitable for me to say that you wouldn't have a clue what may be missing from that house? Martinez, correct. You want to know how we can cut down the number of wrongful convictions considerably? How about everyone, including law enforcement officers, just tell the damn truth? Don't spin your testimony to fit the state's narrative. Don't testify your assumptions as facts. Just say what you know, plain and simple. And for the record, that's what cops are taught to do. And I believe that's what most of them do. But it doesn't seem to be the case in Harris County. I mean, I guess I'm assuming that's how they're taught. I can't imagine police officers are taught to testify any differently than firefighters. I was always taught to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. Testimony is not a time or place for your opinions, unless asked, and most certainly not the time or place for assumptions. Just the facts. That's it. That's your job. Just look at the stark contrast between Robert's testimony and Martinez's. Robert's clearly had no agenda. She didn't care if her testimony helped or hurt either side. She recounted what she knew, and that was it. We didn't see her changing her testimony during cross. There were no gotcha moments when Mac presented her with a report that contradicted her direct testimony. Different information came out in cross and direct, sure, but that's normal. 
The state isn't going to ask questions that they know will hurt their case. So, of course, when the defense steps up, they'll make sure to get those answers into the record. But in this case, with every law enforcement officer's testimony that we've examined, cross-examination is the undoing of direct. The same thing happened with Martinez's testimony that there was no forced entry into the house. During direct, she stated with no uncertain terms that she didn't believe a robbery had occurred because, aside from the fact that she assumed nothing was stolen, there was no signs of forced entry. And of course, we've heard this before, but that's the point. It's the party line. And just like with Maurice Carpenter, Mac asked Martinez some specific questions. Was the garage door open? She doesn't know. Did you at any time check the door from the garage into the house for forced entry? She hadn't. Again, the clear statement that there was no forced entry into the house was nothing more than an assumption. It's what she's been told, and likely what she's been told to say. And that leads me back to the issue at hand. Sandy's emotional behavior that night. During direct examination, Martinez testified that Sandy appeared to be crying but there were no tears. She even went as far as to say that she would think that if someone had just found out their husband had been murdered, they would, quote, at least shed a tear for them, end quote. During Cross, Mac asks her if she documents everything that she finds significant in a report. Martinez says that she does, and again, she wrote a report in the car that night, so everything was fresh in her mind. He then points out that there's nothing in a report that says Sandy had no tears. In fact, it says that she was lying on the floor by the toilet crying. It says that she was hysterical and that she had to make significant effort to calm her down to talk to her. Nothing about fake crying and no tears. Martinez testified that she thought it was significant back then and she must not have documented a report because she was relatively new on the job and didn't necessarily know what should be included. Then she says that she did tell detectives that night that she had noticed that Sandy had no tears. And Mac points out that none of those detectives noted it in their report either. Despite the fact that she's already proven that her memory of the details of that scene that night are shaky at best. Remember, she was certain Sandy was not laying on the floor, but a report clearly states that she was. But despite that, she continued throughout all of her trial testimony to double down on the fact that Sandy did not shed a single tear. She maintained the party line even after she'd been presented with the fact that she said no such thing in her report, that the EMS report stated the exact opposite. The contrast of these two testimonies, Stephanie Roberts and Jennifer Martinez's, really paints a picture of how this entire trial went. The prosecution and the Harris County deputies went into trial with a singular mission. Convict Sandy Melgar through any means possible. They had their talking points, and they stuck to them whenever they could. Nothing was missing or stolen, there was no forced entry, and Sandy was faking her emotional response to finding her husband dead. Because she killed him. When you compare the testimonies of Maria, Herman, Stephanie Roberts, and Jennifer Martinez, it seems as though they were operating that night in parallel universes, in one universe, you had the first three, who all saw a distraught woman, hysterical, screaming, crying, inconsolable. While at the same time, Jennifer Martinez is standing right next to them. But in her universe, she sees a woman who is pretending to cry, without any tears. A heartless woman who is trying to get away with murder. 
the end of the day, you're going to have to decide who to believe. The three people with no reason to lie or twist the truth, who all witnessed the same thing, or a police officer who wrote in her report that Sandy was crying and needed to be calmed down in order to speak, but five years later at trial, said she was faking. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Fussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. Keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod. And my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.